everybody, bringing you another bonus episode, this one with crackers and grape juice, a long-running podcast with a tongue-in-cheek title from a United Methodist couple of pastors, one of whom is Jason Michelli, who was a classmate of mine at Princeton Seminary many, many years ago. We just recently reconnected, and he had me on the show, and we had a great talk, so here it is. Grace and peace, and welcome to Crackers and Grape Juice, the podcast where we attempt to talk about faith without using stained glass language. My name is Tommy, and on behalf of all my friends, welcome to today's episode. Today, Jason is talking to his friend, Sarah Henlicky wilson Sarah is the founder of Thornbush Press, launched in 2020, and author of a number of books under its imprint, such as I'm Brave Bridge, Sermon on the Mount, A Poetic Paraphrase, Small Catechism, Memorizing Edition, Pearly Gates, Parables from the Final Threshold, To Baptize or Not to Baptize, A Practical Guide for Clergy, and A Tumbling Down. After you're done listening to today's episode, go ahead and check out the website for any classes or events or any news uh, with the show coming up. You can always get yourself a t-shirt, leave a rating, review, all the things. I hope you enjoy this episode. I don't know that I've ever had anyone on the podcast that I've known from back in the day. Oh, well, I'm in an elite crowd then. Maybe that's more I'm... about Princeton Seminary than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, th- I think I've had people, I've had guests on who I handed mail to when I worked in the mailroom, but no one I actually <laughs> have ever like had a conversation with. All right. So you're, you're uh, in Southwest Virginia right now? I am. My parents live between Roanoke and Blacksburg. So, um, okay. So you grew up in New Jersey, New York though, right? That's right. That's right. They moved here in 1999 after a stint as missionaries in Slovakia for six years. And so that's how you ended up as a Slovak Lutheran pastor in Trenton? Well, my dad's family is all Slovak on both sides. He grew up in still like probably one of the last experiences of Slovak ghetto. not really ghetto, but like his, his, his dad grew up speaking Slovak, was a pastor in a Slovak American congregation. So my dad grew up around that. And that was why there was interest when communism ended for him. He was invited to be, go be a professor for the newly free seminary and the flood of seminarians coming in after so many years of communism and repression. So I learned um, to speak the language more or okay. less there, but you know, like the way a 17 year old girl would speak the language, which is mainly to flirt. <laughs> so it wasn't actually that useful in the congregation, which was also all elderly people whose parents had immigrated like a hundred years earlier. So it wasn't the shoe in natural fit that I thought it would be. <laughs> so Southwest Virginia is not home. No, but I mean, I've been coming here almost a quarter of a century now. For it since they moved here so it's it's familiar territory and and uh just judging from facebook photos your dad loves farming oh you follow him on facebook <laughs> yes he also loves facebook which i don't <laughs> but yes he uh yeah they have a kind of farm here they have cows um the cows got out yesterday so we got to chase them down that was fun and bees and chickens and a huge garden and fruit trees and yeah he has fun so um, I, I, my first question is like, uh, I, how, how do you get so much done? Yeah, 
Okay, could you be more specific? Well, I mean, like, like, like you've written, like, no, like, there's so many things you've written, like, you mm. teach, uh, you also have your own, like, publishing label, right. imprint, like, so, I mean, like, just, like, like, I mean, do you have any hobbies? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose, um, I like to I like to hike and I like to cook. Well, the, the cooking obviously feeds into some of the theology I do. Well, there's I guess there's several answers. One is that obviously I'm just one of those compulsive producers, and my dad is like that too. We have that in common. And I I haven't ever been overly afflicted by this by imposter syndrome or feeling like you know how can I send my stuff out into the world? I, my, my presets have been you know the world should be so lucky to get my my flood of um, publications. So I don't know what that says about my character, but at least it it uh, doesn't hang me up on getting stuff out also because just of the way publishing works i've just kind of and, accumulated and, uh, yeah. sorry you you came to you came to seminary having written some like viral type essays right <laughs> am i remembering that correctly yes and, and if we could just l let let that sink into the dustbin of history that would be fine with me too yeah well i mean thank god there wasn't social media then right <laughs> it was bad enough even with the websites but yeah no i i uh, i worked for first things for my first year out of college i always feel compelled to say it was a somewhat different first things than it is now yeah. um yeah but yeah, but Newhouse really liked me. He liked me so much he proselytized me heavily to become a Catholic. That obviously <laughs> failed, but he also wanted me to write and give me a chance. So he kind of got me a start, and then and then I wrote for Boundless Webzine, which was a, a project of focus on the family. And th this should tell you pretty much everything you need to know about me. I grew up in such a Lutheran bubble that I did not understand the concept of evangelicals. Like American evangelicals was <laughs> meaningless to me. I didn't know anything about focus on the family or James Dobson I just knew that they wanted to pay me to write an article for them every month and you know on a, a, a small salary living in New York City money was good and you know getting published I always wanted to write so yeah I wrote for them for a few years before I think I had a series of articles rejected in a row and I suddenly realized I don't think we're going to track together much longer <laughs> But by then I was uh, like, I was, I'd been um, noticed by some other things. And, you know, it helped very much that I was very young and female at the time, uh, female was still something enough to distinguish you and get you in the market. I, I will not say when or why exactly, but I remember exactly the point at which being a woman no longer counted for anything. Hmm. So we, we have passed that point. Yeah. So you and I met in seminary in the early 2000s and then just to acquaint listeners, because you've had you've had an interesting path, most of it far away. Yes. So, so, so yeah. So, kind of give us, you know, where where you went from there. Okay. So, well, like I already mentioned, you know, my parents lived in Slovakia for six years, and so that I, I'd always wanted to see the world, even when I was a kid. But that really, I got the bug from there. And then I went to Princeton Seminary for my MDiv next year. Did my church internship in North Carolina, uh, met my future husband, Andrew, at about that time. We got married a year later. And then we both came back to Princeton Seminary again and did our PhDs there. And then we finished right at the time of the financial crash. So that's a great time to be in the humanities academia. And um, 
to no longer, in my case, for being a woman was no longer worth squat <laughs> in, in uh, getting a job. So the one that opened up was in France um, at the Institute for Ecumenical Research, which is an affiliate like partner institution with the Lutheran World Federation and was started right around the right as the Second Vatican Council was wrapping up to be a house of studies for Lutherans entering into bilateral dialogue. You know, the first 50 years of ecumenism was basically multilateral World Council of Churches mm -hmm. stuff. And then the Catholic Church said, you know, each of y'all is different. So we need to have different conversations with each of you churches. And that actually kind of suits, I think, Lutheran way of thinking better too. So yeah, so I went to work for the Institute. We lived there almost eight years in France. I have worked on Lutheran Orthodox and Lutheran Pentecostal dialogue. And then it was just time mainly for family reasons to move on. So we came back to the US for two years. We came in 2016. That was a bad year to re-enter American culture. And just kind of my husband, especially, we wanted him to, to, you know, take the next step. And he tried reinventing himself, but he always wanted to be a church history professor. And the one and only job that opened up was in Tokyo, Japan. <laughs> and at first we kind of laughed it off, like Asia is someone else's life. All of our, our travels had been in Europe or Latin America. Andrew's fluent in Spanish, and that's where his doctoral research was. But that was the door that opened and stayed opened. And so in 2018, we moved to Japan and have lived there ever since. What is that like? Wow. Well, that that would could absorb the rest <laughs> of the, <laughs> the conversation. Um, it's bewildering. And from what I gather from foreigners, gaijin, who have lived there very long term, it never stops being bewildering. Maybe you get more used to your bewilderments, but it's just, it's super duper different. So it's like, it's like lost in translation. Yes, that actually is not a bad representation. I, I think I, I'm pretty well assured that Tokyo is not like the rest of Japan, but a third of Japan lives in Tokyo. So it is crazy urban and technological and advertising and like the shelves in the stores talk at you and sing at you. And that's very unsettling. People are very uh, isolated and lonely. It doesn't seem like a happy place to me at all. It seems mm. kind of spiritually desolated. So that makes life hard, but it makes church awesome because the only people who come to church, because it's such a, I mean, it's like 1% Christian still. And like, this is after serious mm -hmm. long-term 150 years of very devoted missionary effort, barely budge the needle at all. But it means that people who show up at church desperately want God. So like in a weird way, it's like my dream congregation and pastorate because people there are not distracted by anything else because they're just, they, they come to church to stay afloat in a very, uh, I don't know, I think personally uh, hostile to ordinary life kind of place. And they need God and they need each other. And because also my congregation is an English speaking congregation within a Japanese congregation. So I don't, I don't really know so much what it's like within the Japanese congregation, but within our English congregation, we have people from so many different cultures. We don't have the same context. So nobody is demanding that I take a stand on anything one way or another. Like my joke is that we all agreed that COVID was bad and Russia should not have invaded Ukraine. And that's about as far as it goes. <laughs> so that's fantastic. But it also means it's fantastic because nice. life yeah. is, is very unrewarding in a lot of ways. So I don't know, you don't want church to be good because life is awful, but you know, if life is awful, it's really great to have good church <laughs> to keep people going. 
That's, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So um, you mentioned um, Lutheran Pentecostal conversations uh, before, and uh, Chris Green, I don't know if you know him. Oh, yeah, I know um, the name. He's been yeah, on the so podcast, he, right? He's been on Crackers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so I, I read a little book that he wrote on Robert Jensen, and so that mm. pushed me to like reread Jensen stuff, which, uh, you know, I read in seminary, and I don't think I was like mature enough to really understand what I was reading at the time because you know the prose appears simple but it's you know it's not and so uh, but through Chris Green I've noticed there seem to be a lot of charismatic people attracted to, to Robert Jensen and so I'm, I'm wondering you know is there something within Luther's theology that is a, a handhold for people from a more charismatic tradition hmm. Yeah, so I so I was involved in like our institute in Strasbourg started at what I call a proto dialogue with just some, some Pentecostals who were interested, and that which then got adopted by the Lutheran World Federation and the Pentecostal World Fellowship. So it's kind of it's formal now. But and in, in the uh, the proto conversations, I don't think I was there for it. But my my uh, the director of the institute, who was my boss, talked about how one of their they were talking at some length about. Pentecostal understandings of worship and Lutheran understandings of the Lord's Supper. And finally, my, my colleague, Theo Dieter said, you know, you Pentecostals think Jesus is present absolutely everywhere except the bread and the wine. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and now again, this is a highly select bunch of Pentecostals, but they went, huh, you're right. That doesn't make sense. Why do we have a Zwinglian doctrine of the Lord's Supper? That doesn't suit us at all. It's probably just because of our inherited anti-Catholicism. We'll work on that. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, I think there would probably some, be something in the very, um, I mean, in classical Lutheran teaching, which Jensen represents, uh, a very profound sense of the Lord's the Lord Jesus real presence that he is not chained up in heaven at the right hand of the father. And um, also Luther had a very rich doctrine of the spirit, which has been more or less overlooked in subsequent generations of Lutheranism. Uh, my dad has actually done a lot to try to excavate that, but I would think probably those, those two things. And also I think as Pentecostals, you know, get educated, get PhDs, kind of look more deeply into the history of the church um, at least the ones that I've hung out with have been interested in the Reformation heritage, have called themselves Protestants, though, you know, they feel free to choose from the whole history of, of the church as they should, as all people, all Christians should. But I, I think there are some some obvious points of contact. And honestly, East African Lutheranism, which is where it's the biggest and growing, there's like, I don't know, like hmm. probably 25 million Lutherans in East Africa. They're all charismatics. There's like no no difference between Lutheran and charismatic for them. I was once uh, <laughs> we had a dialogue meeting in Madagascar and we had a presentation from one of the Lutheran seminary professors on one of their four revivals, which are all still going, some for decades and decades. One maybe for more well over a hundred years by now. Their revivals never die. And they do a lot of exorcism and um, you know, that's very much central to their their evangelistic practices the people from evil spirits and when he was done talking he had a copy of the book of concord next to him and he patted it and said it's all right in here <laughs> <laughs> and uh i i yeah i thought well if you see the you know evangelistic practice of exorcism in the book of concord i'm not gonna argue with you <laughs> but it was just so indicative of the no no perception of conflict between traditional doctrinal lutheranism and what they needed to do in their own time and place to bring people to christ 
And, and um, it seems like that kind of ethos informs what you're trying to do with uh, Thornbush Press um, in, in terms of, you know, like taking a, a an, an older document like the Book of Concord um, and, and representing it uh, to a new audience. Mm. Is that fair? Well, it is fair to say that I'm so deeply formed by the Lutheran tradition such that I didn't even know what American evangelicals were. And, <laughs> um, and, and yeah, you were asking before about publishing. Like I said, partly it's because I have a, had a backlog because kind of stuff I'm interested in doing doesn't quite fit in the market categories. And um, also, as uh, I mentioned about Japan, I'm alone a lot. That's very good for productivity, unless you sink into depression, which is also a, a genuine risk. But yeah, I think actually maybe at the root of it is that I'm completely fascinated by the concept of genre. So I started calling it transgenre theology. This was really bad timing to coin the term transgenre. Nobody reads <laughs> I was right. going to make a joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I, I took that from you. But um, I think it was actually, uh, I don't know if you ever had Don Jewell at Princeton, but he was mm -hmm. hugely important to me. He is, of course, Lutheran. But um, it was more like he gave back to me what the revised common lectionary took away, which was allowing me to mm. see the scripture for itself and not for neat typological pairings that allowed you to like solve the problem and dismiss it out of hand. And I think, and because when I was there, probably for you too, there was much more focus on literary theological readings of scripture rather than like historical critical method or form criticism. I don't, I mean, I don't have any objection to those, but I think that kind of made me realize like, well, we only ever do theology in the key of Romans, but Romans is only one genre in a collection of many different genres. And, you know, maybe because also, you know, I just read widely. I just started thinking like, there's got to be more. Well, so basically like, Christian fiction, if you just think of it that way, is so disgustingly awful and, you know, <laughs> embarrassing other than, you know, C.S. Lewis, Madeline Lengel, you know, Frederick Buechner, there'll be a few, but most stuff that's called Christian fiction is just appalling. But then people who are theologians don't ever learn the art or the craft of writing outside of the academic monograph. And I know, I know brilliant people who in person you talk to them and you just come away with your brain sparking with ideas because of their rich understanding of the Christian faith. And then when they go to write, it's just dead on the page because they've internalized the lifeless genre that is the academic monograph. Or, or if you invite them to preach for you and, and, <laughs> and you're like, what was I thinking? Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't had such bad luck in that respect, but yeah. But I mean, there's just, there's kind of a, a sense in theology that there's only one, one way to do it. And that just bugs me. And I don't think it's really adequate. I think I've gotten more and more to the point that like, if you want to ask of questions about human agency and divine agency and how they interrelate, you can't go very far sketching it out conceptually. I think actually fiction or hagiography as genres are much more useful in actually perceiving what's going on and interacting with it in a fruitful way. So as an example, give listeners sort of a, a snapshot of the plot of uh, Tumbling Down. Oh, right. A Tumbling Down. So this is a novel about a Lutheran pastor and his wife and their three children in upstate New York in the late 1980s. And full disclosure, I grew up in upstate New York in a Lutheran pastor's family in the late 1980s. It otherwise <laughs> is not 
does not track with my my family's experience at all and I only have one little brother uh, not two there's two little brothers in the story and an older sister and uh, basically the family is kind of going through the sort of usual things of life and growing up in church and then a terrible, terrible tragedy befalls the family, and in the wake of that, a faction of the congregation decides to exploit it to try to take out the pastor, and then how everything unfolds from there. So, and as someone who writes a lot, what was the process of writing uh, a novel like, or how is it different? Yeah, so I've written a number of failed novels before. I think anyone who ends up writing a successful one has a trail of tears behind them. <laughs> I did too. Uh, it is a real craft. There are things, and I read a ton of books on writing. It just took a long time to assimilate. The academic nonfiction writing came to me faster. But I actually had this idea about 15 years ago. I even wrote a couple of the scenes that were re retooled for this version. But basically, when I realized that the story needed the tragedy, it horrified me so much, I just couldn't go near it. And then in, I guess, spring 2020, when I realized I was not going to be seeing my American family that summer, I wasn't going anywhere that summer, I wasn't going to church on Sundays, you know, life was <laughs> giving me as much of an open spot to do anything as it ever was going to. I said, well, it's time for me to try again to write a novel and see if I can make it work this time. And out of all the various ideas I had floating in my head, this one kind of elbowed its way to the front. And I remember having this internal dialogue like, really? The one where that happens? But that was the one that wanted to be written. So I went to Starbucks twice a week, which is boring, but that's Japan also has Starbucks and none of the good coffee shops open till too late in the day after my brain is no longer uh, ready for creative writing. And I just made myself do it and just followed my way through and took me about 13 months beginning to end to draft it out. And then of course, plenty of rewriting before I actually published it. So I have no idea what being a publisher means. We had, uh, what's her name? Kate. Langston mm. on the podcast and I remember um you know opening her book sealed and seeing the I was like well what's Thornbush, Thornbush Press and I so I looked it up and then I was like wait a minute I know her <laughs> um and then I, and then I saw like all the stuff that you had been doing and and then I just I felt like you know lazy um <laughs> I, well, but, uh, like you said, you're probably not nearly as alone as much as I am, and you don't live <laughs> thousands and thousands and thousands of miles from everybody you know. <laughs> so, uh, so I got sealed, and then I got your novel. I got a copy of your small catechism translation for my goddaughter, uh, and they're all really beautiful books. Um, Thank you. Which is not how I would characterize a whole lot of books that are published in the, you know the the typical theological presses so, so you know so what is it like to be a publisher and and you know wh where does the visual aesthetic come mm. from mm. well part of what's happened is a huge industry change over the past 15 years where it became possible basically to be an indie publisher what was previously called self-publishing or vanity publishing but instead of like so vanity publishing is paying some publisher a buttload of money for them to take your intellectual property and um, you know literally print copies. It was it was always kind of a scam, and those scams still exist. But with things like Kindle Direct Publishing and there's a company called Ingram Spark, they let anybody create an account and you know upload files and uh, do print on demand. And pretty much all 
nearly all books you get now are print on demand and especially from academic presses they don't do a print run anymore i can actually tell now when i open up a book that it was print on demand and the 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 quality How can you tell? varies um i've just seen enough by now i can tell by the the typeface or not the typeface okay. or not the font but like the quality of the printing and the way the binding is i've looked at enough of them now and there's a variety of there's different levels of quality within print on demand as well and then Kindle allowed people to publish ebooks direct, and eventually you're able to develop to publish audiobooks direct. And so now all the software is available. There are also marketplaces where you can hire designers. I already knew how to do um, the basic um, the in the pages of the books because I was a um, magazine editor for nearly a dozen years, and my husband did the design. But I, you know, I work with him, and I learned how to use Adobe InDesign and so forth. So that was also part of it is that I had enough of the skills that I could do almost everything myself, but not the covers. And that's always where <laughs> the the, uh, the common knowledge is never design your own covers unless you are actually a designer by training. So I use a service called Readsy and they kind of vet um, designers who, you know, advertise their services. So you just kind of look through and see ones you like. So I've just found designers I've liked and worked with them and they create the, the specifications for the covers that you can use. And I did this partly just because I'm extremely impatient. Um, I wrote a, a memoir about the year that I lived in Slovakia when my parents first moved there right after the end of communism. And I, I did the thing you're supposed to do, send it out to agents, you know, did the research, found ones that seemed likely. And that was right as the pandemic was starting. Um, you know, none of them were interested in what I was doing. Nobody cares about Slovakia. <laughs> and finally, I thought to myself, you know, I have all the connections to, you know, English speaking people who like Slovakia, they actually can't offer me anything. And even if they do buy it, they're gonna take all the profits. Why would I do that? And once I discovered I could do it myself, you know, it was just my just general irritation at everything it was like, you know, I'll take my own damn risks and keep my own damn profit. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. And um, I just decided I'd, I'd rather, you know, be small scale and do it myself and be able to, you know, make my own editorial and design choices. And, um, and then I was very grateful when Katie Langston um, approached me. She's a good friend of mine about publishing her okay. memoir. Cause I said, now you have officially made Thornbush Press, not a vanity press. Cause I've published <laughs> someone other than myself. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I think since you put that book out into the world, you should know that I have a number of people who grew up Mormon. who've been a part of my congregations over the years really? uh, who found that book incredibly helpful. Oh, good. I'm good. Um, I was just so amazed at how gracious she was for the amount of pain she sustained from that tradition mm -hmm. and from the decisions she had to make. There's so much kindness and mercy towards it that is just, and it, it's it's for real. You know, I know her personally. It's not a show. It's for real. <laughs> that's yeah, I mean, because that's, um, I mean, you know, but maybe people don't appreciate how difficult that that is a tradition that it is very hard for people to to leave if they choose to yes yes um, it it's just so kind of totalizing of someone's experience and mm -hmm. connections and yeah um so yeah so it's been it's been very helpful to half a dozen people i've given it to that's great oh i'm so glad to hear that yeah so so one of the things i've listened to you uh talks lectures that you've done all over the place uh mockingbird has posted a few of them 
including the one you did a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and you being in what the, the most gospel resistant <laughs> culture historically right now. <laughs> um, and so, you know, so it, it seems like being out of the U S you have a particular vantage point on what the future of post-Christian America looks like. So it's, so it's not that Lutheranism is important, but there, there you know, it, it does seem that it's urgent for everyone who is not a Catholic to get back to and be able to articulate what the initial message of the Reformation was, is. Um, So can you just, yeah, give us your pitch. I think Catholics should too, (laughs) for the record. (laughs) Uh, Actually, it would be great for Catholics to engage with the real Luther and not the received Luther. And that is Mm. honestly a problem for Lutherans and Protestants as well as for Catholics. So, uh, well, just to to backtrack to one thing first, which is that um, I have a very different uh, perception of post-Christian America because nothing like living Mm. in Japan to show you how deeply Christian America still is. It doesn't know, Americans don't know, Americans don't know why they value what they value. And all of Americans' mistakes are Christian heresies. I think it's almost impossible for any idea to take deeply root in America unless it is Christian at root, but without the full catechesis of the church, it will of course be a heresy because how could it not? Because heresies are always one piece, you know, divorced Mm -hmm. and then expanded beyond their, you know, uh, healthy states. So um, all American mistakes are Christian mistakes. So post-Christian, maybe, maybe post self-consciously and with social rewards Christian, but America is crazy, crazy Christian and crazy religious to a degree that, yeah, living outside of the U.S. has shown me in a way I don't think I ever would have guessed otherwise. Give me an example. Well, for, for example, um, like, intersectionality okay so this is something that's just kind of metastasized to something sort of insane and competitive but um the idea that you should pay attention to victims and that you should not assume that they are evil and have brought it on themselves you know that is at root a diaconal impulse of christianity now if that's the only message that you have it is going to turn crazy as it has in so many cases but that's true or let's take the Christian nationalist idea. I don't know as much about this, but the idea that your society should be a city on a hill and an example to others, that's not wrong. The way they do it is wrong. I mean, it's pretty sick and scary a lot of the time, but the, the, where else did they get this root idea that they were supposed to be an exemplary nation? I mean, that's the scriptures of Israel. And that is what the church emerging out of that was trying to figure out how to be under conditions of being besieged. I mean, it's kind of preposterous for American Christians to feel besieged, but unless you have some actual contact with actually besieged people, I can see why reading that all the time would, you know, without having the appropriate balance, which I think genuine missional connections to other part of the world would give you, I can see how you would start to internalize that. And if that is not properly balanced by all the other pieces of the Christian message, I know, or you even understand that it really is a Christian message and not a nationalist message, you know, that, that all, it, it's all just heresies. <laughs> that's, no, that's helpful. That's helpful. That's helpful. Okay. So, so go back to the, the other part of the question. Um, 
you know, what, what is it distinctively about your tradition that you think is helpful for all Christians right now? Um, I guess there are two, two different ways. So let's start with the more practical way, which is just that, you know, Luther received a Christendom uh, that you was poorly catechized, that was immersed in it, but didn't actually know the content of it. And that doesn't look so different to me as where Americans are right now. You know, after mm -hmm. his, his uh, pastoral visits in the area in the late 1520s, um, he came back and his line is, what wretchedness I beheld, <laughs> which is one that Lutherans pull out a lot when they're feeling frustrated. And uh, in the wake of that, he wrote his two catechisms, the small catechism for family use and the large catechism at the time, primarily for pastoral use. And the small catechism became the central piece of Lutheran confirmation practice over the years. And I just, I think the catechetical method has been for whatever reason, abandoned. My my dad was, you know, kind of uh, in his working prime as he when he saw that being turned aside. It's very hard for me to go back and kind of reconstruct what caused. If it was just the '60s, which we love to blame everything on, if there was a really a kind of dead roteness to it, if it was everybody who was in charge had PTSD from World War II, I don't know. But the fact is, if you don't actually put meaningful knowledge you know, of course, with wisdom, of course, with charity and all that into people's minds, if they don't actually have it at hand and they're that have formed their minds and souls, they aren't going to be ready to respond to or think through things. They are going to be, you know, prey to the winds of doctrine. So, I mean, I, I think in that respect, the idea that you, you know, the, the reform part of Luther gets overblown because post-revolutionary Americans just love, you know, revolution is sexy. And so Luther gets retroactively declared a rebel and, you know, a revolutionary, but I think more than anything else, he was a catechizer and his, his preaching was catechetical and his methods were catechetical. And there's just so much competing to fill up our brains, you know, making some serious commitment to having at least some portion of your brain filled with, um, and, and I say not just the Bible, because as we all know by now, as Luther did not realize, but we found out since then, you can read the Bible and know it really well and get it really, really wrong. There are lots of different ways to read the Bible and a catechetical or a creedal orientation to it, I think is the right, you need some sort of tool to help you make sense of the vast number of genres and kinds of content there is in the Bible. But as for the, the proper content of Lutheranism, you know, on uh, I think one thing I really learned from coming to Japan as a missionary, like I knew all the right answers. And the right answer is that only God is God. God is truly God, uh, which I mean, of course, the whole Holy Trinity, which means that grace and salvation are really God's doing. They're not our doing. And, you know, I have not, I, I have not been religiously tormented in life like Luther was. And yet even for me as a pretty easygoing in the world sort of person, this message that, you know, your, 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 your faith, even your faith is not your work. It's God's work in you has always been a blessing. It's given me a lot of freedom and energy to do lots of things and engage with lots of things. But the time I really found that it, it came down to making a real conscious decision. And I realize how funny it is to hear a Lutheran say, I made a decision <laughs> is actually when I got to Japan and I had to be a missionary. And, you know, we, we came for Andrew's work as a church history professor. They asked me kind of, you know, after that, if I would be pastor to this congregation, I'd been out for 10 years. I'd had a really rough first call. 
in that Slovak American congregation. I never thought I'd go into congregational ministry again. But here for the first time in my life, I was confronted with non-Christians, like not just inactive Christians or post-Christians, but never Christians, don't know anything about it. You know, all of their ancestors were something else. And I, I realized very early on, you have a choice. You can either decide you are recruiting for your religious team, in which case anything goes, or you can decide God, the Holy Spirit is the one who converts and you are just there to uh, be the hands and the voice and to answer questions and to give an account of the faith that was in you, but it is really, really not up to you. And so in some way, coming to terms with other people's salvation is really God's work. And I don't get to solve the problem either by, you know, cheap universalism or cheap damnation and judgment, but simply to, to be there as um, the presence, uh, no, the, the, you know, the, uh, yeah, the voice in the hands. Cause I, you know, I, I don't believe Jesus or the spirit are absent. They're, they're doing their thing, but it's their thing. It's not my thing. And um, I think it's so hard to, I don't know. I, I think uh, on some level, what Luther's theology, Luther's doctrine is trying to get you to do existentially as well as cognitively is to come to terms with God is really God, which is scary, unless if you didn't know for the f fact that God is gracious and receiving both realities that God, God is truly God and that the true God is a gracious God is easy to say and very hard to assimilate. And I think all of his, all of his stuff is throwing that reality at you again and again. And there's lots of ways to wiggle out of it by, you know, wanting like Erasmus, some little, little piece for our good works or our contribution or our response, or there's all sorts of dodges. And, you know, uh, hedonism is a problem and complacency is a problem, but I haven't ever known anyone who was fixed truly of hedonism or complacency by being threatened with, you know, your role in salvation. It never works mm -hmm. as far as I can tell. How did your preaching change moving to that new congregation? It's hard to say because I only preached for just under two years at my first call and then very episodically after that. But I can just say how I have preached is I mostly, I mostly just try to explain the content of one of the lessons to help people get at it. I often go off lectionary. Don't get me started on the lectionary and try to. Oh, yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Because I, I hate the lectionary. So, so, oh, good, yeah. good. So the yeah. lectionary is the encoding of anti-Judaism, which always tends towards anti-Semitism <laughs> and supersessionism. Just like, <laughs> Acts instead of the Old Testament lesson in Easter season. Like that says all you need to know. Cut off that root of Israel. We wild olive shoots don't need them anymore. I'm well, it, it, like, yeah, I was thinking about this a couple of weeks ago that, that like you would never know from most churches practices that resurrection is a Jewish hope, not a Christian one. There, there's so much. I didn't know that the word Pentecost was a Jewish holiday until I was like 30. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. And, and the typological pairing, it's just the, the basically the Old Testament is defective and Jesus fixes it. That's all you get out of it. And um Oh, yeah, it's it's very frustrating. But also it's just like it's like stop, start, stop, start, like being in a bad traffic jam. You don't get any mm -hmm. any runway. And I just preach better if I can follow through a book and kind of work through its logic with people. And um, mm -hmm. I like to do that. I almost never do 
thematic or uh, topical type things. Um, I find my personal feeling is theme-based preaching is a way of avoiding the word of God rather than engaging with it. Um, oh, it's so it's I, like um, it's like planned eisegesis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly, <laughs> right. Um, Premeditated. I do, I do occasionally respond to things that I have picked up from my congregation, like one year on All Saints, I suddenly realized, somehow leading up to it, I suddenly realized actually Japanese people really do wonder if all of their ancestors are in hell. And All Saints mm. seem like a good time to talk about what we can and can't say and what we should and shouldn't worry about. Um, and uh, more recently, I've done a lot more trying to preach about what it means to be a church because there are no there's no concept in the air at hand. Again, like Americans, mm -hmm. however bad they are being church, they have some like category for it and some ideas about what it should be. And I could be totally wrong. Actually, pretty much anything I say about Japan should be taken with a huge grain of salt because to be a foreigner in a place is to have a very weird and unrepresentative impression of a place. But my current impression is that Japan culturally has nothing other than civic religion and cults and like so the space that christianity and i'm guessing probably islam and judaism have occupied historically in the west as being something that touches on all of life but doesn't um swallow up all of life like i think the proper way to think about syncretism in a Western sense is, you know, your marriage and family life is affected by your faith. Um, your economic life is affected by your faith, your political faith. So like all of it is syncretically interconnected. And my impression in Japan is that they have, you know, their civic, you know, the Shinto and Buddhist holidays people observe the way we observe the 4th of July or Thanksgiving. And then like people who are intense spiritually, they join cults and it's all consuming. So to me, the space that church occupies in a, like a healthy Christian society doesn't really exist as a concept. It's not, it's not at hand to work from there. So I've been trying to spend more time figuring out what does it mean to be the church and what does it mean for my people? Almost none of them, they're, they are the only Christian and almost all of them are the only Christian in their family or they don't have family living with them in Tokyo, a lot of single or uh, divorced people. Um, they might be the only Christian in their workplace. So just try to think through like, what does it mean to be church and Christian, both when we come together and then when you're out in the world during the week. So I, I've been doing a little bit more with that. Yeah. So in addition to all the other things you do, you do a podcast with your dad. Yes. Uh, Queen of the Sciences. Right. You know, so what is it like to, to, to do a project like that with your dad? Mm, wonderful is the main answer. Um, <laughs> you know, my dad and I, you know, I, I didn't know that I was going to become a pastor or a theologian. It seems pretty inevitable in retrospect, but I got to college, took my first theology class and I was like, oh shoot, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> and so dad and I have had great conversations, you know, my whole adult life about these things. But when I moved to Japan, I was just so far away from him. I was, I liked the medium of podcasts. So I just thought, all right, well, this is a way I can have a permanent record of our theological conversations and they'll be fruitful for others. And um, it's been really fun because we, you know, we each have, we have obviously, uh, you know, very substantial things in common. I feel like I should also say here, you said you've been reading Jensen, like, I have a hard time reading Jensen, because my, he's like a family friend, you know, when he was alive. <laughs> and my dad had, you know, is closer to my age, obviously, and assimilated so much of his stuff that when I read Jensen, I'm kind of like, well, obviously, <laughs> 
<laughs> so, That's funny. <laughs> so I've had it mediated to me through my dad. But um yeah, so we we you know we have a lot in common, but we also like have specific interests. So at the beginning of each year we kind of draw up a list of topics and give each other reading lists and you know or trade off, you know, like I said, I'm not reading any Hegel. If you want a podcast on Hegel, <laughs> just teach me. I will, I will be an intelligent student, but <laughs> you know, and, or uh, I tried to convince him why Leviticus is completely awesome. And yeah, he, he played along. I don't know how much I won in the end, but it's. So you, so you, so you guys map it out a year at a time. Yeah. I mean, we, we revise a lot as we go, as things come up or, you know, we don't have time for something or, you know, whatever but yeah we, we try to get a sense of what we'll do over the course of a year and that's also because I try to cover a range of things so we do Old Testament books New Testament books specific theologians we try to do patristic reformation modern some more topical things we try not to do too much um a la minute <laughs> to the news trying for something more evergreen uh, usually if we feel the need to address something we'll do a bonus episode for that but kind of, uh, I guess the idea, maybe it fits queen of the sciences, the medieval term for theology, it's trying to encompass the widest possible interpretation of theology, not just systematics as you mm -hmm. get a degree in. So is there uh, a topic where you, you were surprised at agreement or disagreement between the two of you? Hmm. Um... Probably not in a way that anyone would find very interesting. <laughs> if they are, they would, I think, only qualify as the narcissism of small differences. But um, we we recorded one that hasn't come out yet. It'll come out later this year on the inhumanity of lockdown. We had somewhat differing views of the whole COVID thing and um, ha hadn't really talked about it much on the podcast. And uh, but we felt like we were ready to talk about it. And I there were definitely some differences, but we ended up actually ended up being now maybe in retrospect more on the same page than when, where we started so okay so give me a preview of your take on the oh, on the lockdowns i would say i was skeptical from the outset and uh hmm. also i'm younger and you know less less susceptible i was also experiencing it in japan rather than the u.s so i had a different you know set of uh pressures and also an ability to block things out because i don't speak japanese <laughs> but um i i i was I was concerned from the outset what this was all about and why why were people assenting to it and what the collateral damage was going to be. And I think my dad was a little bit slower to become skeptical um, about things uh, also related to the vaccine. So I may have lost all of your listeners at this point already. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I remember it was right around, I think it May of 2020, Tom Holland, the historian, had a piece in Unheard or some platform like that and complaining about how uh, church leaders in COVID sounded more like HR uh, people, you know, in terms of mitigating risk and liability and, and not at all sounding like, you know, the Christians who care for people during the plague, um, for example. And, and I felt seen by that, that we, and yeah, and I know that's true in the United Methodist Church in Virginia that we, we spent a whole lot of time talking about, you know, procedures and things like that, but not, not really reflecting on the risks and, and damage that not gathering together mm -hmm. would do yeah. to people. 
I think the the problem was compassion. This is sort of like I was saying about heresy. It's a true thing, divorced from everything else. I think in COVID, everyone was very eager to be compassionate and a good neighbor and not endanger their neighbors. But the only way compassion was analyzed was through the lens of likely COVID contagion. There are a lot of other ways that compassion is real and necessary. And it seems like none of those had any grip. And I don't think, I think, I, I don't know about people high up, I'm, I, you know, I'm sure there were some bad actors up there and the people who made the decisions that were imposed on everyone else. I really think that among a lot of the clergy and lay people, they were acting out of good intentions. But as mm -hmm. the saying goes, the road to hell. <laughs> and um, the cost has been enormous. And I mean, I, and I know a lot of churches and pastors who were put in impossible situations, their congregations polarized, they each demand demanded non-commensurable policy decisions mm -hmm. all of the other stresses were you know as it is pastors be are lightning rods for a lot of things so i know that a lot of pastor and then you know if there was state pressure and all this kind of thing i mean i i wasn't i wasn't in the u.s i had a very different experience of what i could and couldn't do and it had its own costs to me and my family but it, they weren't the same set of costs that were imposed here but it does, it does yeah. trouble me how how fast the the gathered in-person body was abandoned. And, you know, like I, I am very strongly opposed to so-called virtual communion, which is no communion at all. And I have uh, both Christological yeah. reasons as a Lutheran and pastoral authority reasons, which are Lutheran. But I would think even the most Zwinglian low church person should recognize an ecclesiological reason why you can't have communion alone. You know, by definition, it's when the body gathers to worship together. Yeah. It just isn't. I yeah, I agree with completely with you. And I was so frustrated when like my own bishop at the time put out a statement to everyone about, you know, how virtual community was fine and they could do it. And um and it's just yeah, it didn't make any sense yeah. to me. Um, yeah, I, but, but that... I, I'm actually pretty, pretty uh, friendly towards capitalism. But to me, this represented the ultimate commodification of the Lord's Supper. You are entitled mm -hmm. to your product. And mm -hmm. that's all it was, is access to the product and all the all the things that makes communion communion other than the sheer productiness of it. And like those I saw and seen in some churches, those horrible little Jesus, you know, that are, you know, the wafer on one side and the, the juice on the other. Just like, what does anyone think this is? <laughs> I just, oh, okay, I'll stop now. No, I, I mean, that, that's a good, uh, I mean, it gets to the idea of queen of the sciences, right? That that science as an, a, a total explanatory worldview, it's, it's easy to get caught up in that and not realize that that's what you've done. Yeah, yeah. So Sarah, I see that it's lunchtime, so... You know, the way we end the podcast is with the 10 questions from inside the actor's studio. So uh, I'm, I'm assuming you have lots of favorite words, but what is one of them? Oh, well, I'm ready for this. My favorite word is Wittershins. I don't know what that is. It means counterclockwise. It's an old English or Scottish term for counterclockwise. Wow. Wittershins. It's just fun to say. No, I mean, you're like a female David Bentley Hart now. <laughs> Um, uh, what is your least favorite word? Welcome. What, but that's, uh, that's, that's, and I should say that's in the department of, I don't think that word means what you think it means. A la the princess <laughs> bride. Uh, the way welcome is deployed as a 
term of control rather than what it actually means in mainline churches, including my own, makes me angry. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, what turns you on? The smell of a newly mown grass or hay. What turns you off? Crackers and grape juice at communion. <laughs> uh, what sound do you love? Uh, I love the sound of a congregation really belting out a hymn they know really well and just, you know, maximizing the volume for the sheer joy of singing together. What sound do you hate? Notifications on anybody's phone. (laughs) What is your favorite curse word? Oh, uh, any in a foreign language because it has a huge impact, but you don't feel it yourself. what what profession other than your own would you like to attempt one day? Uh, oh, actually attempt. I don't know about that. It's sort of a, a, an alternate version of myself would be a collector of contemporary paintings that are not nihilistic and require actual skill. <laughs> That's a really good answer. <laughs> uh, what profession would you never want to do? Bishop. Worst job ever. I, I think that's probably true. Uh, since heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly? The gates? library's up ahead on the left. That's a really good answer too. Man, you nailed this. Well, I've been listening to your podcast. I knew this was coming, <laughs> so I prepared. <laughs> um, Sarah, it's really good to have you on. It's good to um, see and hear you. Um, keep up doing what you do. Tell your dad he needs to say yes when I invite him on the podcast. I will do that. And thanks for inviting me on. This has been really fun and I'm glad we've had a chance to reconnect this way. We'll keep it yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And have, have a good lunch. Thank you. You too. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Is this your way of killing time? Have you found God or just lost your mind? Prefer the straight up path so much so that you've lost your love. I'm not saying.